0: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. In this episode, I will be speaking with Andrew Long about his book, Secrets of the Cold War, Espionage and Intelligence Operations from Both Sides of the Iron Curtain, that was published by Pen and Sword History in 2022. While the image of spies in the Cold War may conjure up uh, associations with James Bond, Andrew Long and myself will get into the very fascinating but true stories behind espionage during this period. Andrew Long is a British military historian and researcher and author who specializes in the Cold War period. Andrew Long, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: It's very good to be here. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, we usually like to begin our interviews by asking our guests, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's the backstory behind uh, writing this book?
1: Okay, well, I'm a historian and an author based in the far southwest of the UK, down in a place called Cornwall. Um, Specialising in the Cold War. That's my uh, area of interest. But within that um, broad subject, Berlin um, tends to be a focus on a lot of my uh, work. Um, after a long career in business, I uh, relocated to Cornwall. And um, in about 2014, I came, we came down here and I began writing full time. Um, and I've had four books published so far three on um Cold War Berlin and that's for a publisher called Hellion the military history publisher called Hellion and one with Pen and Sword Books which is the um book we're talking about today Secrets of the Cold War um but I've got loads of titles in the pipeline I've got uh, enough to keep me going for a good few years now um but um Yeah, I began researching the Cold War and really stumbled into the world of espionage. You can't really um, avoid that, to be honest, because the Cold War was mostly fought in the shadows and a lot of it was done secretly, covertly um, and uh, using espionage to gain the advantage over your opposition. So that's really how I stumbled into the the fantastic world of spies.
0: Now, what type of sources were you able to uh, consult for this book? And I'm especially interested in the Soviet sources, because I know access to that can be problematic, especially given current events.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, I read far and wide. Um, uh, I I began building up a dossier, I suppose is the best way of describing it, um, on all the main players. But what was really interesting was the way they all were interconnected i didn't realize this to start with i assumed that you know there were these various individuals who did their stuff but the more i dug into into the subject the more they were linked and interconnected and that sort of sparked my interest a bit and i ended up doing these um, <laughs> crazy mind maps these um, sort of like uh, uh streams of consciousness arrows and lines and that sort of stuff but that from that the stories developed um the luckily where from where I'm located so I'm you know I'm really in in the far west of the UK long way from London and most of the uh, big archive sources but thankfully from the US side of things um an awful lot of materials available online primary source material uh mainly through freedom of information requests or where um, the CIA or the NSA has declassified huge chunks of information over time, um, and that's fantastic. Um, the uh, Even the NSA, you know, they're supposed to be ultra, ultra secret. Well, I contacted them about um, one of the things we're going to talk about, and they sent me this huge, great book in the post. Um, must have cost a fortune to ship across the Atlantic, but it's fantastic because it it was um, basically uh, explaining the whole process and had loads of the original documents inside it, which was amazing. There's a really good resource if your listeners want to um, delve into the world of um, national security and that sort of thing. It's called the National Security Archives. and they're based at George Washington University, and they have fantastic information. They pub they're constantly publishing more, and they're also suing the U.S. government constantly for releases of new information. So it's it's an amazing resource, but it's an academic. It's a genuine sort of peer review peer reviewed source. Um, the Brits much harder to get hold of. We're rather keen on keeping our secrets secret um, over here, it seems. Um, But there's some fantastic historians, uh, uh, in particular, a guy called Christopher Andrew, who's done some really chunky works, but they are pretty much the uh, go-to place for British intelligence history. And then, of course, there's the Soviets. Well, that's even worse, as as you alluded to. Um, The soviet archives go back obviously pre-revolution you know they are huge um and they um opened for this tiny little window i think it was about a year or two in the 90s and then slammed shut again and really we are uh, reliant on defector um Testimonies And there's been some really, there's been three really important um, defectors who've given huge amounts of information on the Soviet intelligence system. A guy called Vasily Matrokin Mitro- um, and Oleg Gordievsky. Um, they worked with this Christopher Andrew guy to produce uh, almost like a textbook of so, of Soviet intelligence. And there's also some a couple of US academics, John Haynes and Harvey Clare. And they worked with a guy called Alexander Vasilev. In the, in the 2000s and again fantastic resources and they get, and they go down to the sort of real detailed trade craft like you know wearing a pink carnation and carrying a copy of the New York Times you know it's it's that level of detail which of course for me is absolutely fantastic um it is worthwhile mentioning the world of spy fiction as well um we sort of talk a little bit about this later with the sort of the Legacy but James Bond, yeah, OK, is, is fantastic, massive franchise, little bit on the fantastic side, to put it mildly. Where it's more relevant, I think, perhaps for a uh, historian's perspective, is John le Carré. And um, his works are generally assumed to be very realistic, even down to the sort of shabbiness of the... Uh, British Civil Service and the intelligence services at the time. Um what what's interesting though is his a lot of his phraseology that you see in his books, um, and his films, well, all the films, words like tradecraft, Moscow rules, honey trap, the cousins talking about the Americans, the circus, which is the um, MI6 headquarters, Moscow Center, all these are words that that John or phrases John Le kept has came up with in his books. Um, but they've now been absorbed into into the actual real spy lexicon, uh, which is yeah, it's it's quite a, I think a a testament to his um his uh his work. But um yeah so spy fiction um yeah a lot of it is very fantastic but there is actually an awful lot of realistic stuff out there.
0: Yeah sometimes when people bring up James Bond I usually <laughs> tell them that the closest thing you're going to get to that is some of the covert operations that were conducted during the second world war, like SOE, uh, you know, doing a lot of those, uh, commando raids and also mm. connecting with the, uh, resistance movements. That's the closest thing you're going to get to James Bond. But yeah, uh, John LeClaire, uh, George Smiley, his character. I've, I've often heard that that's actually more accurate to especially, mm. uh, espionage during the cold war. And even with, uh, soviet defectors uh i think even uh oleg uh, kalugin who was a former kgb general he's become a bit of a, a source of information especially since he uh sought asylum in the united states and he's been very critical of uh, putin and his mm. policies
1: uh yeah so I, th- I think forth. that's that's that, that's true but the you know most of the information, unfortunately, is buried deep inside the Kremlin or the the Lubyanka or whatever you want to call it. But, um, no, certainly the um, – I think, I think the, the only other relevance, I think, with perhaps James Bond is some of the gadgets um, <clears throat> were – yeah, of course, they're crazy, you know, cars that turn themselves invisible and that sort of stuff. But some of the more mundane g- gadgets – actually did happen and that that, that, there was the equivalent of the Q branch and they were producing um, miniaturized gizmos and and that sort of stuff. And so, you know, there is a certain amount of truth in that. um, Although, yeah, not quite on the level that uh, um, certainly the James Bond films have uh, portrayed.
0: Yeah. And Ian Fleming,
1: he was in naval
0: intelligence uh, during the second world war.
1: So he did have a background in in the air. Yeah and he was very well connected and and knew all the all the guys but he um he went far more sensational uh, whereas John le Carré was actually an MI5 officer um and he he's I think uh stayed very much close to the to the to, to the reality yeah now uh
0: you kind of begin your book with this discussion about how we don't really know when the Cold War begins. We kind of have an idea when it ends, like 1989 to 1991, when the Soviet collapse. But there's a lot of debate among historians about when it actually begins. And you kind of give your own definition. Can you explain that and probably explain to our listeners why you think so?
1: Yeah, there, there are lots of different opinions. Um, I mean, put 10 historians in a room you'll get 20 um, answers probably but the um yeah different opinions as to when it started and when it finished um some suggest it was um august 1945 when the atomic the atomic bombs were dropped over japan that's one 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 date churchill's famous um iron curtain the sinews of speech Speech and the sinews of peace, excuse me, the sinews of peace speech in 1946. That was an important milestone. Uh, the Marshall Plan in 1947, or even Stalin's blockade of Berlin in 1948, 1949. Others say when the um, Soviets had detonated their own atomic bomb in 1949, that's another you know, possible milestone. I'd argue that it's really the the big three conferences that were called between the british the americans and the soviets they were the um second world war conferences that brought stalin churchill roosevelt together together and and they started to re- um, plan the new world order the the, the post-war um uh landscape if you like and it was in those meetings and particularly the potsdam conference which was um, in um july 45 that was really where the um new battle lines were drawn as they started to carve up europe or the world um what's really interesting through my berlin books um the cooperation between the soviets and the west let's let's get into these two camps pretty so str- <laughs> from the from the outset um they co- cooperated pretty well throughout the second world war pretty much as soon as hitler or the nazis surrendered the battle lines came down the, the shutters came down and stalin w- went his own way and the, the west had to respond so for example the um allies um only made it into berlin on the 4th of july 1945 hitler um stalin had been in there since may um and the the cold war really began in those dangerous few months after the uh, second world war um the four and a bit decades of the Cold War was really the standoff between these two competing ideologies, communism on the um, from a Soviet perspective. And they say capitalism in the West. Now, I don't necessarily agree with this concept of capitalism. Um, you've got the US, Great Britain, France, you've got NATO they don't really preach um, a a, a creed of capitalism, perhaps in the same way as the Russians or the Soviets would preach communism. Um, It's a convenient label, um, capitalism, but it's really more to do with um, uh, democracy or the freedom of expression, freedom of speech, the free press, free market economies. That's the, if you like, the creed that stood off all those years against Stalin and and Stalin really was preaching communism on an international scale Um, and that's really you know what the conflict was made up of when did it end well the fall of the Berlin Wall in 89 November 89 was a seismic event but that was only really the start of things Germany reunited or reunified in 1990. The Soviet Union basically imploded uh, in, in 1991. And the Soviets, um, and then followed by the Western Allies, um, left Germany finally in 1994. So you could argue really the Cold War started in 45 and ended in 94 when the Soviets finally left. So, you know, that's what us historians like to um, argue about. And then, of course, you've got the whole Cold War 2.0 2. that uh, you alluded to earlier. And that's, you know, that's uh, something we, we have to think about. That, you know, did the Cold War ever finish? Ooh, well... I don't know. Um, it's it can't really be compared to the, the current situation we have with with Putin. I don't think it can really be compared um, to the original Cold War, but it has the potential to be equally as dangerous. So you know, I think it, it deserves our attention to, you know, try and find a way way through it.
0: Yeah. And also another nuance in 1945 as the start date is uh, Churchill even came up with Operation Unthinkable, which was about how yeah. us, the Western allies would actually try to fight like immediately after the defeat of Germany. They would invade the, the Soviet Union and try to defeat them. But yeah, the that, British military kind of said, whoa, went,
1: uh... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that, So that, that... that's a good nuance. So that's also a nuance of like the beginnings of the Cold War as well
1: yeah churchill never trusted stalin um throughout um roosevelt i think had his number as well uh, truman i think was a little bit outmaneuvered by uh, by stalin um he thought he could do he could do business with him whereas the truth was Stalin was running circles around um, and it took a few years for, the, for the, the West and perhaps the US in particular to realise that, no, these guys aren't our friends anymore. They are potential foes. Oops, we better do something about it.
0: So... uh Let's begin in with the origins of Soviet intelligence and of course it begins with the character of Felix Dzerzhinsky who was hmm. not Russian he was actually Polish but he founded the first Soviet uh intelligence service the Cheka but um, and then yeah, it's
1: kind
0: a... of... Oh I'm sorry Go ahead.
1: it it snowballed yeah well in fact the it predates um the the, the Cheka really that the, the Intrigue and conspiracy had been had been at the heart of the czarist um sort of subculture, if you like, um in the at the turn of the um, 20th century. Um the re- revolutionary movements driven by uh, uh by Marx and Engels and, and picked up by the Bolsheviks um was full of intrigue, full of conspiracy, full of um betrayal it, it, it was it was that mindset really from the get-go um lenin they obviously had the um succeeded in, in their revolution they toppled the uh, uh the czar you know the romanov family had been sitting on the throne for 300 years for goodness sake you know it's a it's a massive deal but um the bolsheviks you know succeeded in toppling this uh <laughs> this Regime, if you like, but Lenin needed an organisation to identify and um, sorry to yeah identify and suppress the, his internal opposition. So the Cheka was formed um, in 1917. It became the NKVD in 1922, and then over the next uh, few few decades, it kept changing its name to various things: OGPU, uh, MG, MGU, all kinds of different things. Um, but until 1954, it became the um, KGB and stayed uh, as the KGB until the end of the Cold War. In parallel and deliberately put to compete with the KGB, that was a Stalin thing. He he liked to put people up against each other and rub them up and and just to see, see what happened. And so the GRU was the military intelligence arm of, um, of the operation. And yeah, they went... Um, through um into well nowadays you have the um uh, the SVR and the um, FSB they're the um and also still the GS, the GU now um but the, 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 those of the, the mentality uh, has has moved into modern modern days and there's the expression uh, once a czechist always a czechist and you've got the uh obviously putin as we know was a kgb officer um he was he was uh, in dresden when the war fell and um yeah his mentality is has you know lingered shall we say
0: yeah uh, you brought up a good point about the the czar because the czar had his own secret police the Okhrana. And they were kind of butting heads and the Bolsheviks had to constantly try to outfox uh, these guys. But then once they came to power, they kind of started to try to use those tricks and all that. I heard a story one time that even as late as the 1980s, the KGB would use some of the training manuals from the Okrana about how to infiltrate like subversive uh, mm. groups because it was just that effective at yeah uh, doing uh, that.
1: And, you know, you know the... the Bolsheviks um, were had had to operate um, with a sort of counter counterintelligence um, sort of approach, f- really from their very exist- the start of their existence. So they had to out dodge the Okhrana, um, and then obviously, the, yeah, you're right that they, they took on the same mentality. I think one of the things stories I'd heard is um, the um, KGB officers now SVR and FSB officers get paid on the um the same day in the month as the original Czechists did back in um, 1917. So you you see these little sort of traditions have actually gone through. So yeah, they may have different initials above the above the door, but um, unfortunately some of the mentality persists.
0: Now uh one distinction that that comes up quite a lot in uh, studies about espionage, especially during this time period, is the difference between legal and illegal agents. And can mm-hmm. you explain this distinction uh, to our listeners?
1: Yeah, and, and you know this this is something that's I, I talk about in the book. It's it's um it's quite an important aspect. Really, you've got three tiers, if you like, of agent. So you have a legal which is a a KGB or a GRU officer. They're posted under diplomatic cover. Um, They're working normally under an assumed name um, and a role, something like a cultural attache or a a trade attache, something like that. And they work within the embassy or the consulate. And they operate in plain sight. They're accredited. You know, the, um, the, uh, the opposition... In the fbi in the in the us will be aware of them and will probably know that they are agents of the kgb but they operate in plain sight despite that um they, they operate in something called the residentura which is this sort of the um uh, this outstation if you like of the intelligence services they enjoy diplomatic immunity and they could they can still do intelligence operations, they can run agents covertly, but if they step over the boundary and they um, basically um, are careless enough to be caught, they are likely to be what's called PNGed, would persona non grata where they are no longer welcome in the country and they will get expelled so they still have diplomatic immunity that they can't get prosecuted but they certainly can get kicked out and so that was the sanction for the legal uh, the upside was the protection the downside was the restrictions then you have the illegal um, sometimes called sleeper agents um, they're operating undercover under a complete assumed identity um no safety nets of diplomatic immunity they are you know um uh, there's a great um tv series called the americans um yeah you know which is a, a brilliant series about american sleeper agents but they can they can sometimes operate for years building up their networks um running their own agents and they they use the, re- the resident residentura for uh communications and for technical support and that sort of stuff, Um, but they would be operating under the radar. The most famous, I think, perhaps was Rudolf Abel, Colonel Rudolf Abel, otherwise known as Willie Fisher, who was arrested in 1957, and he was a sleeper and had been operating in the States for many years. Um, If you're caught, as he was, you're then at the mercy of that country's legal system, and, you know, we'll talk about that perhaps in a minute. Um, The illegals would then recruit their own agents and that the, the agent if you like is the uh the lowest form or the person at the coal face actually doing the spying and they would be recruited for various reasons we'll perhaps talk about that in a minute but they would be picking up the information passing it to the to the age to the um the, the illegal or possibly to the legal, depending on on what the route is, um, and so they're working on these three different levels um, uh, throughout. Yeah, you mentioned
0: the Americans. That's actually a pretty good show. I uh, watched that quite a lot. It was also good practice for my uh, rush for my Russian uh, <laughs> training. So uh, one of the early uh, Soviet intelligence operations during the Cold War and even during World War II during that blending of the two was their uh infiltration of the manhattan project and uh you know how were they able to do that uh, especially kind of trying to get information about the atomic bomb and also you know pass that information so the soviet union could eventually build its own program
1: yeah this was a an absolute epic story i i knew i knew about it um i, I was aware of some of the um main players but until i really started digging i didn't realize this firstly the scale of the manhattan project part of my research i actually learned all about how they went about building the bomb because i thought it was important to me to understand the context but the scale of it the industrial scale of it and that sort of thing um and then how massive the soviet intelligence network was that was uh, uh aiming to penetrate it um that was i think really quite extraordinary um the manhattan project was the biggest secret of the war and yet the uh soviets man- managed to penetrate it at every level it's extraordinary so basically you had the scientific developments which were going on it started off in the uk with uh something called tube alloys which was the code name for the um uh, the science that was going on at various places around the uk um the um uk was never going to have the money to and the, the industrial muscle to develop it so very soon uh, they evolved the americans who um yeah great and so chucked in this amazing amount of resource and energy and money and budget um and also in canada as well There was a lot of operations going on in canada um uh as well as the the, sort of the famous Los Alamos um, headquarters. Um, But as they began to develop this research, um, the sort of Stalin spies started to pick up on it and began to report back to to the centre. Stalin had built up this massive network of spies, couriers, um, legals, and and illegals um during the 30s and despite the purges which wiped out that whole sort of um officer class if you like within the Soviet Union the intelligence networks just about stayed to, stayed together and as soon as there was some new some sort of sniffs of something going on they were able to deploy their agents right into into the um the project um the main players really was from the UK there's a guy called Klaus Fuchs uh, a German um, guy who fled the Nazis um, Alan Nunn May and Bruno Ponticorvo, and um, Ponticorvo was an Italian guy who came to li- live and work in the UK all of that all of those were scientists and they worked on the project in the States there's a guy called Ted Hall who was actually a very damaging spy that did, did a lot, lot of damage for the for the uh manhattan project and then you had engineers like oscar sabora george cavall uh, russell mcnutt and david greenglass and these guys were working on the nuts and bolts of how this bomb was going to be built and some of the industrial processes to create the uh raw materials for it um as well as that, you had a number of couriers and organizers and recruiters. The most famous was Julius Rosenberg, who was, of course, executed along with his wife. Harry Gold is another famous one, and a lady called Lona Cohen. And we'll come back to Lona Cohen because she's a she's interesting. She crops up in one of one of my later stories. Um, the truth only really came out after the war. So um, it was after most of these scientists had spread out back across the world, after the uh, end of the Second World War, and it was actually some um, advances in code breaking that that toppled the whole uh, network.
0: Is that Venona uh, that you're referring to? The
1: uh... yeah, yeah so so venona is the uh, a code name but really spy agents can be toppled in a number of ways alan nun may he was one of the british guys he was working in canada he was implicated by a defector so basically this um, cypher clark guzenko um defects to the canadians he says i've got all this got all this information and blah 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 blah. blah. Nun may scientist canada and then next thing, Alan Alan Unnum is arrested. So he was the very first of the atomic spies to be arrested. But it was the Venona project, um, and that's extraordinary. I think many of your listeners will have heard of the um, the, the Bletchley Park, um, the uh, sort of uh, ultra secret where um, the codebreakers, uh, Alan Turing, and that sort of stuff were were um, breaking the Enigma codes. Well, that was extraordinarily clever and important for the, the the sort of the uh direction of the second world war venona was actually breaking diplomatic codes um so they 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 the americans had been collecting uh diplomatic traffic intercepting and collecting it since the 30s a bit sneaky but hey oh um and um they were they could crack the codes very slowly but surely um what happened was the, basically the, uh, the the way in and there's a, there's always a key there's always a, a way into these codes what the, the key was um a mistake in the printing process and the production basically some of the keys to the code were duplicated and they shouldn't have been they should have been completely unique but for whatever reason somebody mucked up somewhere down the line and P- the code breakers at the at the um army signals agency spotted these these patterns and that was their way in and very quickly they st- well not quickly it was a huge effort to um to, to sort of process these codes um basically between 1940 and 1948 they managed to intercept a load of this information, and it wasn't until after that, in the in the late forties, that they were, they were able to to process it. And Venona was a massive operation; hundreds and hundreds of uh, uh, cryptana- cryptanalysts, linguists, um, basically mathematicians. Uh, the early computers were used. It was a major operation, but slowly but surely, they identified code names these code names started to appear things like otto would name otto would appear in different messages different people different times different places and they were a bit like my my crazy mind maps at the uh, at the start they they started to piece it all together and really the the fbi were involved at this stage and working with the codebreakers, you've got two quite interesting characters. You've got the, the the G-Man, you know, the famous FBI persona, and you've got the Egghead, the the, the sort of boffin, the, the uh, cryptanalyst. But the two actually worked really well together, and they pieced it together. Um, slowly but surely good old meticulous detective work establishing these links and these patterns and slowly but surely they could actually end up putting names to code names and klaus fuchs um was the first to fall and so he he moved um to los alamos during the second world war he, he'd finished um, he was actually very much involved you know right at the core of the bomb project Um, And he um, went back to the UK and started working in the um, British bomb project, the post-war British nuclear industry. Um, And they arrested him in 1950. There was a sort of like uh, an MI5 uh, investigation. He ended up confessing i think he'd had all those years of secrecy and subterfuge the pressure was getting to him and he in a way i think he was actually quite glad to confess and really they fell like dominoes after that um and you had the, the the big trials in the states with the rosenbergs uh harry gold green glass some really quite dodgy stuff going on betrayals um you know sort of uh And you ended up with obviously the execution of uh, the Rosenbergs, which was uh, was and is still quite controversial. But some of the some of the guys made it to to the Soviet Union; that they escaped scot free, and so you've got this real, you know, dramatic uh, end to this whole saga.
0: Yeah, it's always kind of interesting uh, because it also brings in like what how stressful it could be to be a spy because then you don't know who's going to betray you. You don't even know the person who might uh, have the key, key information that's going to betray you. And he can have his own reasons for doing so. Uh,
1: that have nothing yeah. to do with you. And also that, you know, the, the technology involved, um, you know, some of the trade craft you, you're, you're, let's we'll talk about in a minute, but nowadays people have their mobile phones and their mobile phone is a camera. It's a, <clears throat> some mail device messaging device all these sorts of things contained in a little bit of plastic and metal now of course in those days they had to rely on very elaborate means of communication and they had to to produce microfilm or micro dots micro dots are incredible it's where a uh, a page of information is um, compacted into the, to the space no bigger than a full stop a period point at the end of a sentence and that then they will will get a scalpel and sort of position it in a book on a certain page on a certain line and then at the other end the book gets sent and then at the other end they they, they peel off this um micro dot put it in a, in a microscope and boom, 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 that gives you all the information so this type of sort of classic uh tradecraft was the way they had to operate um and so nowadays we take it for granted don't we i'm talking to you across across the atlantic on a computer you know you it, we could be it could be encrypted we could be sending each other encrypted messages and that sort of stuff but back in the day it was a very laborious time-consuming and dangerous way of communicating
0: yeah exactly now what were the geopolitical implications of the soviet uh uh, infiltration of the Manhattan Project because this definitely had an impact on the Cold War and the geopolitics of. The- yeah absolutely I
1: mean you could I think one of one of the the um root building blocks of the Cold War as we talked about at the start is is very much this um balancing of the nuc of the nuclear um sort of geopolitical situation the Americans thought they'd have their Um, dominance for years and they expected to slowly build up and you know that they expected to rule the roost then in that's in 1945 you know the first bomb uh, first couple of bombs then 1949 all of a sudden Stalin thanks to these spies explodes their um, his own weapon crikey all of a sudden now the whole balance of power has been twisted and that prompted the arms race um and uh in effect cemented if the cold war wasn't already there the the uh, 1949 explosion of the uh little joe as it was called uh really cemented the cold war uh in place now what were
0: some of the common motivations for uh soviet uh spies uh because there's a little bit of a mix of like ideology but then also later on in the cold war a lot of it was also like for financial gain what were some of the common motivations
1: i think um a lot of the mo- the motivations go back centuries millennia if you like um the same uh, some of the same motivations that were um doing the Caesar's spies uh you know in ancient Rome and and um the Elizabethan's uh over you know over here, the the intrigues um are constant. It's it's a human thing. Um the one of the obvious things is financial some people were just simply in it for the money they they were mercenary they didn't really care about that their, their own country or the country they were dealing with but if that person's going to give me lots of money i'm quite happy to betray my my people and pass the information and that was actually surprisingly common um blackmail is another one entrapment um there's this wonderful word word compromat we've got compromising information on you If you don't do as we say, we will tell the world and your career, your life, whatever, will be in tatters. And there's the infamous honey trap. And a honey trap is another one of these John le Carré words. But we all know what it means. It's basically somebody gets seduced, um, photographed um, in um, inopportune places or positions with uh, inopportune uh, partners. And uh, that evidence gets uh um held against you and you get forced to cooperate and betray your 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 people and of course the uh the soviets and not just the soviets um our, our agencies as well basically looked to exploit these weaknesses in in human nature there was also um some people were actually just attracted by the thrill of it the 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 so-called glamour the danger the that sort of thing i don't think that there's, there's an awful lot of it that isn't glamorous <laughs> but the i mean greville win would be a good example he he was the courier to oleg penkovsky um we'll talk about him in a minute perhaps but the um he he got He got quite excited by the glamour um, of being able to fly around the world, dealing with these people, you know, and just just quite liked that whole sort of uh, frisson that um, uh, came with it. It didn't work very well when he ended up in a Soviet cell, but that's... um, that's another story patriotism people obviously um tried to um use that aspect you know let, a- appealing to someone's patriotism to um you know if you love your country then you, you need to help me but then the most powerful and the hardest to i think uh discover and uh challenge is the ideological um spy and certainly the um the communist um Experiment, the Communist International, that the whole outreach program that Stalin kicked off um, reaching out to these idealistic youngsters, students, academics, um, he very much drove that ideological um uh argument. And many spies argued for the cause. Uh, The Cambridge spies, for example, um, Kim Philby, um, you know, really decided back in the 30s that, yeah, communism is the way. And, okay, he rose up very high within the British establishment, but all the time he was doing it for Mother Russia.
0: Now, another one uh, who you mentioned who was also kind of motivated by uh, ideology was George uh, Blake, and he has a bit of an interesting uh, story. Uh, can Blake, you tell
1: us about him? Yeah. Blake's it's an amazing story. It's 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 one of those you almost couldn't make it up. It's it's um, so so extraordinary. He was a um, uh, lived in Holland uh, when he was he was a kid. The, the Holland um, was ultimately occupied by the Germans. He um, was escaped traveled on his own he's about he was in his teens at this stage um he traveled on his own all the way across europe down to spain got a boat from uh spain to the uk enlisted as in the royal navy got a commission in the royal navy got recruited because of his language skills to um sis to the mi6 um the secret, secret intelligence service um and um, was a a, a sort of up-and-coming spy. He was then posted to Korea um, just before the Korean War. Um, the, the, The Korean War all blew up, and he was captured, and basically put into a uh, a camp and marched well, these sort of death marches um up into north korea real hardship i mean absolutely terrible conditions um but during that process he had an epiphany he realized that actually um communism was the the, the answer what what his masters were doing were, was wrong and so, um, he offered his services to the uh, Soviets. So this is in a, this is in a, a prison camp in North Korea. Um, he, he, knocks on the door and says, I, I want to work for you. And from there, it snowballs. He then gets eventually released, returns to the UK, and he um, gets welcomed back into the fold by his spy, spy masters. Um, and he gets posted to various places, he gets posted to Berlin, gets posted, a bit, um, you know, is, is an up-and-coming um, British spy, all the time <clears throat> excuse me working for the russians um now this this was uh, he was a very very highly placed spy after the the cambridge spy networks had all imploded he was really the star you know he was he was gonna be the important um uh person but what he was doing all the time was betraying all these operations around him um doing extraordinary damage to uh british interests
0: now, one important operation that he betrayed was this plan by the CIA and the British to tap into, kind of dig a tunnel underneath the, the Berlin wall didn't exist yet, but kind of, but kind of uh, dig a tunnel underneath where the Soviet sector was in Berlin and try to tap into their communications. And can you tell us in, about that
1: story? Well, yeah, well, th- this is probably his greatest betrayal. Um, he 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 betrayed individual agents um, who were subsequently killed. But this operation was massive. Basically, they in Vienna they discovered that they could tunnel under the ground, find the the, the Soviet telephone lines, and using some very clever. Um, scientists from the British post office they could work out how to tap the individual phone lines so operation silver took place in Vienna and then they, then they thought okay well let's let's see if we can do it in Berlin and they identified a stretch of phone line down in, in a, a it's basically the south east corner of, of Berlin a place called Glinica. and um the phone lines there they 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 managed to get the um the city plans the you know the sort of the utility plans they realized that the the um phone lines were quite close to the surface so therefore okay well perhaps this gives an opportunity they then came up with this extraordinary plan to basically dig a big hole build a warehouse over it over it fill the hole with the spoil from a, digging a tunnel and this is a long tunnel we're talking 1500 feet 400 meters going right under the the um the border and it's not actually that far at all from the the surface they, they tried to go deep but unfortunately they hit water so they had to you know there was water coming up everywhere so they had to uh, stop and rise up a bit so that they were actually running very close to the surface so close that you could hear voices you could hear vehicles you could hear stuff that was going on on the surface you know it's pretty scary stuff but they built this warehouse to disguise what they were doing and um they built this tunnel very clever techniques were used and they basically positioned this tunnel right underneath where the phone lines were they then brought these telephone engineers back in who then tunneled up to the phone lines now bear in mind The Soviets weren't weren't, weren't silly. That they knew that they had to protect these phone lines. So there was like electronics, like sensors on them, and these engineers managed to defeat these sensors and tap these phone lines. And underground, there was this big chamber full of amplifiers and and you know clever wizardry. And then inside the warehouse were banks and banks and banks of tape recorders that was basically um, recording every single phone call that went through these phone lines. And these were the main trunk lines um, going into Berlin. So it was hugely significant. The crazy thing about it, though, Blake had betrayed the tunnel, the operation, to his Soviet masters before they even cut the first um, bit, bit of, you know, just probably started digging. Um, and it gave the Soviets a real dilemma because Blake was clearly their new star if they um basically intercepted the tunnel there was a danger that the, their star who was probably going to reach the very top of the um intelligence services um was was would, would be revealed so they made this extraordinarily brave decision to um to let the operation run um and there was no evidence that they actually compromised the communication. So what the West were recording was was genuine. There there was no information planted because it was just too random and too huge to do that. So for almost a year, they um, had to accept that every phone call was being listened to and this is extraordinary uh, b- bit of intelligence this um and then ultimately they decided yeah, get enough is enough let's um we'll accidentally discover this this tunnel that they'd known about all along and it was discovered and you know, there was a big diplomatic fuss about it it was um um you know all these big sort of like uh press jamborees if you like um but um what it meant though that um blake's existence was protected And so he was still able to carry on his espionage future, um, and the tunnel operation was forced to come to an end. Now,
0: how did uh, Blake's spy career come to an end? Because didn't he eventually escape
1: uh, prosecution uh, in the end? Again, this story, you couldn't make it up. It's it's fantastic what, what happened. Basically, Blake was he was feeling the strain you talked about the stress earlier uh yeah he was feeling the strain he he, he knew that you know around every corner there was a potential uh f- hole for him to fall into anyway the um sis sent him to lebanon to um learn arabic he was already a russian speaker uh spoke multiple languages but they wanted him to learn arabic so he, they they sent him to lebanon and he went there with his family and continued spying to a certain degree but he couldn't actually do much of value he was like if you like on hold till he he got his next posting um what happened again we talked about the idea of a defector being a a key source of intelligence well there was this guy called sniper he was codenamed sniper anonymous source started feeding really high grade intelligence to the um uh cia and mi6 um he identified two spies in the British British establishment. One was codenamed Lambda-1, and he was in the British intelligence um, uh, establishment, if you like. And Lam- Lambda-2 was in the Admiralty, the Royal Naval Navy. What did Blake in was basically um, a contact from his Berlin days. It all went a bit, 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 mad and this individual implicated um Blake suspicion grew the the dots were joined the lines you know the connections were made and they they realized actually Blake could have been at the source of a lot of these intelligence issues that we that we saw over the over the previous few years so he was lured back to the uk he was it was a, a sort of classic um um uh, interrogations um scenario he confessed he was he was tricked into confessing if you like he was convicted he received a, a 42 year 42 year sentence which at the time was the longest sentence ever given um you know he, he was he was a very bad traitor as far as the, the british establishment were concerned and he was in prison and you'd think that would be the end of his story but no um he managed to escape so he's in wormwood scrubs prison which is a sort of victorian um edifice um in in London um it's supposedly impregnable but he um, he escapes through an amazing thing climbing up a rope and all that sort of stuff um he then manages to escape from the UK hidden in a camper van uh S, um, sort of uh, Winnebago type thing and he then gets driven by these um sort of socialist sympathizers he gets driven all the way across europe um down the corridor with the berlin corridor and then he hops off just before berlin gives himself up to the soviet guards there and gets welcomed back uh, into the fold as a returning agent so this is in, in the uh, sort of early 60s um he lives in the soviet union to the grand old age of 98 he, he only died um in 2020 so extraordinary story from rotterdam you know via all these extraordinary things to living out his 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 life uh in uh in in the soviet union or subsequently russia
0: now another story you talk about in the book is the portland spy ring uh what it, what, what did they do what was their significance
1: um again it's a similar sort of story all this was kicking off in the in the 60s 50s and 60s <clears throat> excuse me it was a very dangerous time there was a lot of um positioning going on between the superpowers so there's an awful awful lot of spy activity um the portland spy ring um centered around this lambda 2 this um person identified by sniper this um uh anonymous source who was a um a clerk um working at the admiralty's underwater detection establishment in portland it's basically where they um worked on submarine technology the next generation submarine technology um sonar and things like that um and he he was a sort of an admin person he wasn't a scientist but he had access to confidential documents and he had his girlfriend um ethel g who um, was also able to secure this information he was a out and out financial spy he he, he wasn't doing it for the um ideology he, he was doing it for the cash um and his handler was a, sit, a sleeper and a legal agent called gordon lonsdale who was a who was masquerading as a Canadian businessman, but actually he was a, a Soviet um KGB agent called Conan Molody. And he his story is extraordinary. I, I won't go into it now, but again, another interesting story. He worked, um, Lonsdale, Stroke, Molody, he worked with a couple of couriers called uh, Helen and Peter Kroger, and they operated out of a small little bungalow in um a suburb called Rice just outside London. They were actually, um, we talked about a lady called Lona Cohen um, earlier on as one of the atomic spy careers. This was her. She'd escaped from uh, New York um, when the, uh, the the atomic spies all blew up and, and they were being arrested left, right and centre. She went to Mexico, she went to New Zealand, she went to Paris, you know, Soviet Union, ended up um, in the UK, with a different identity and her and her, hus- her husband were the couriers the technical support to the um portland spy ring so um sniper identified this guy and again good old-fashioned police work um actually tracked down the the spies caught them red-handed and um they ended up arresting the, the you know all of them all five of them that the, the portland spy ring um they all, all imprisoned um because they were illegals they didn't have any diplomatic cover so that you know that they were at the mercy of the uh the judge and they would have spent an awful long time in prison if it wasn't for the concept called the spy swap um and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute but um they all managed to get their freedom um well the the soviet participants got their freedom through this uh this spy exchange um H- houghton H- harry H- harry houghton and his, his girlfriend ethel they served their time and then disappeared off to obscurity they'd been used by the the soviets they the, their, their job was done they just disappeared but the um the soviet sleepers basically still had some quite important uh stories to to be told
0: now another major spy of the Cold War era was uh, Oleg Penkovsky, and uh, he plays a very critical role, especially during the the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, what is his significance to Cold War espionage?
1: Again, this was happening all at the same time as these other stories. It only goes to show what a what an extraordinary uh, uh, period this was in, in in spy history, if you like. He was a colonel in the GRU. He um, I think, was becoming dissatisfied with his lot. I think he'd probably been passed over for promotion. But he he decided that what was going on in the Soviet Union was not right. And um, he needed to, um, he wanted to approach the West. It took him a long time to actually get the West to listen to him. Um, that was an, an interesting thing. But he ended up being given a courier a chap called Greville Wynn. Now, again, we, we I like to l- link back to popular culture. There's a really good film called The Courier, starring um, Benedict Cumberbatch, and um, that's all about Greville Wynn and Penkovsky. Uh, it's a re- recent film. He was a really prolific... Penkovsky was a really prolific agent. He just kept pumping military intelligence into the west huge amounts of stuff almost unbelievable amounts of material he he was coming but it was all genuine he was just um he was just motivated by um a desire to do something to damage the soviet union because he 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 no longer believed in it um it's all ultimately um apart um as as we'll talk about
0: yeah there was also what's called the moscow rules can you explain uh, these this was kind of like rules of how agents were to operate
1: yeah well th- this is all down to tradecraft again that's that john john le carre um uh concept but it's basically techniques they use um moscow rules was a John le Carre invention, but it's basically talk describing a situation where you're operating in a very hostile environment, um, like Moscow or East Berlin. They're the two pretty most dangerous places to, to, to be a spy. It meant by doing everything by the book, missing nothing, um, leaving some, literally no stone unturned. Um, it particularly referred to communications protocols, because again, you're talking... Operating in Moscow or East Berlin, there's a spy on every street street corner looking out for you. Um, communication protocols, for example, leaving a little chalk mark on a lamppost or a, a drawing pin put in a, um, a sort of a park bench or a, a bus shelter or something, those were signs that the handler would pick up. He would It would rit- uh, give a signal, I am under surveillance, I... Um, need to be extracted or i need more film for my camera you know it could be any of these coded messages um and it was also used to um work with things like dead drops now a dead drops is a is a classic spy um tool it's it's a location known to both parties that they use to hide items to cache items the agent would covertly stash some films microfilms micro dots whatever documents in this location uh, it could be under a stone in a in a park or um a, behind a loose brick in a wall or it could be behind the cistern of a toilet in a public toilet uh, all those were sort of quite common um locations where both parties could get to and they're it's reasonably covert all of these would be carefully um cased uh, and um examined beforehand to make them perfect you know that, that they they weren't under observation that they were away from street lights it's, it's, it's the day before it's days before cctv but there's the analog equivalents um so they would um place their their material in the dead drop they put a signal on the whatever it is the person would go oh okay i need to service that dead drop so they would um go to the the secret place retrieve the documents place new films whatever the communication is and that would um be how these people communicated to each other uh, again in days of mobile phones and such like it's quite hard to imagine the the sort of um, manual nature of this but this was Moscow rules this was operating in some of the, the most hazardous hostile situations you can possibly imagine
0: now uh, probably the most important impact that Pankowski had was during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis of uh, 1962 I believe and uh, And uh, what was that? What was that impact? Uh,
1: Again, as I was writing this, all this stuff was kicking off at the same time. It's unbelievably how dangerous it all built up. So the Cuban Missile Crisis, as we know, was a bit of a standoff, to put it mildly, between Khrushchev and um, Kennedy. Um, Khrushchev placed um, intermediate and um, uh, sort of medium range um, nuclear missiles in Cuba. Uh, with a view to threatening uh pretty much all of the us um now it was a it was a massive standoff I mean it's an extraordinary story of of how. I think Khrushchev's adventures almost brought the world to oblivion, but also how statesmanship and good sense prevailed. Um but in the background you had Kennedy working um with his uh, famous XCOM, his famous group of um, you know, um clever people in the in the White House, and how he responded to the the, the crazy threats that were coming out of Cuba. N- in the knowledge that he knew all about the weapons that they were placed there. He knew, thanks to Penkovsky, the exact launch operating uh, protocols you know, it, it takes this long to fill up the, the, the rocket with fuel, it takes this long to prepare the warhead, it takes all this information was critical. So he knew the exact time scale he had to work with. And that's a huge valuable bit of information to um to to know. He knew that probably he he had the ability to launch strikes, potentially a preemptive conventional or nuclear strike on on Cuba before they could fire their missiles off and without that knowledge he his negotiation stance would have been very different and who knows the results so yeah penkovsky had a um you know unusually important role to play um it all didn't work out for him unfortunately typically he he was so prolific he resisted um the opportunity to be uh, extracted um and he fell under fell under suspicion and um unfortunately it was one of these sad stories where he um all of a sudden he was um he he was stopped from going on trips he uh, all of a sudden had minders with him um he turned up to a function and there'd be a couple of heavies in the background it was clear that something was going on and then one day he just simply disappeared and it it his courier Greville Wynne, um, was also arrested at the same time, um, which was, um, really quite dramatic because this, this was a British citizen who was arrested for being a, a courier. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it put the whole, um, uh, sordid <laughs> story, um, uh, right into the press. What it ended up being was a show trial that, um, uh, Penkovsky was convicted and subsequently executed and Greville Wynne was um uh sentenced to hard labor and, and locked away in a soviet prison so it was you know not a particularly glamorous solution for greville wynne the playboy uh playboy spy and Penkovsky unfortunately got a got a bullet or other such uh, execution so um yeah, he he um, he did a great service to the West, but unfortunately paid the ultimate price. Now,
0: another spy you talk about is uh, Gerald Brooks. And I think this is the one who he also got involved with a Russian dissident group, uh, which also has its own unique history. The uh, National Labour Alliance of Russian Solidarities, the NTS, as it was commonly called.
1: Yeah, um Brooks was he's a bit of a, a sort of sad story really he he wasn't a spy um he he um he was a, a I think a naive innocent if you like um he was an academic who um developed an interest in in all things Russia Soviet he had a um a, a sort of group of friends who were on the emigre the Russian emigre sort of Community and he got sort of got pulled into this um, sort of exile community if you like he was um persuaded or offered to go to the Soviet Union on a holiday uh, would you believe um with um his wife and um basically the he was supposed to take some 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 material across for this NTS. NTS was basically a an, an emigre association that the uh CIA pumped a huge amount of money into um before they realized it was thoroughly penetrated by the um the kgb and it all it all was sort of these these shadowy um world that was going on post-war um but the when when brooke got to um moscow he uh passed the information as as he was meant to to this person this person turned out to be a kgb spy and so Brooke was arrested and Brooke's career as a courier or as, a, or as a as an academic was um cut short um the real his his um importance to the story if you like is not so much um what he was doing or even the nts that he was um uh, supposedly working with it's the the fact that Um, he was thrown into the 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 phenomenon called the spy swap and we've talked about this a few times but basically when a uh, potentially a high value spy is arrested um, he uh, if he's an illegal he will get put in prison and he could be there forever if however on the other side one of um, your agents gets arrested um, and Imprisoned, there is an opportunity through back channels through negotiation for the two people to be swapped, and there's an exchange rate that's worked out depending on, on the relative value to their own intelligence surfaces. So these spy swaps were were reasonably common in this in the 60s. Uh, the most famous one again come back to my film analogy is portrayed in the Bridge of Spies with Tom Hanks, basically in 1960 uh a cia pilot called francis gary powers um was shot down in his u2 spy plane a massive diplomatic incident um wrecked eisenhower's um sort of uh, uh and khrushchev's chance to sort of like sit down together and try and sort out this this uh conflict but it wrecked it because eisenhower stuck to his guns and it all it all blew up anyway Francis Gary Powers was in, was in a Moscow prison at the same time Rudolf Abel, who we've talked about before, Colonel Rudolf Abel, aka Willie Fisher, um, he was he was a, a Soviet illegal, and he'd operated as couriers and radio training operators, that sort of stuff. He worked with the atomic spies. He worked with Lona Cohen, who we've spoken about before, um, and he was arrested uh, again. You've seen that in, in the film, if you if if you've uh, watched it. But um, a deal was struck to swap Willie Fisher for um Gary Gary Powers and there's this um famous scene at the Glinecker Bridge between West Berlin and Potsdam um that became known as the Bridge of Spies hence the name of the film and they were swapped at dawn and that's the spy swap and it happened quite a few times it, it happened a few times at that particular bridge but it also happened at some of the other crossings in Berlin, for example, the Heerstrasse um, crossing between East and West Berlin um, and, and so on. And basically they negotiate and said, right, I, I will give you one of your spies if you release two of mine. And this is how the negotiations go. Um, so if you look at the people we've just been talking about, well, Greville Wynn was swapped for morrison Lona. loner Cohen, the the Krogers, the 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 Portland Spies, that was a hugely unequal swap because Gerald Brook was in effect a nobody. He was a academic, you know, a school teacher, um, but happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Whereas they were actually top notch. Soviet couriers illegal couriers so but anyway that was a, that was a spy swap um it wasn't done at dawn across a bridge they both flew back and forth at different times because there was a sort of political negotiation um Gordon Lonsdale who was the, the sleeper courier of the Portland spies he was swapped for Grevelwyn, the courier for Penkovsky again another major spy swap and basically the this incredible sequence of events in the sixties all sort of sorted itself out in the end. Okay, Pentkowski was executed, but all the others, all the other pieces fell back into 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 place.
0: Now, one thing you talk about is the Robertson Malinin uh, agreement. Uh, can you explain what uh, what that was?
1: Sure. Um, this is actual. Uh, actual uh, a a live project for me at the moment i've got a chapter in the book on a outfit in berlin called Bricksmiths, b-r-i-x-m-i-s they're a uh um, the the british mission um to the soviet forces um and i'm actually writing another book on on that at the moment um so there's a chapter as the introduction if you like and now i'm working on the the full project basically at the end of the second world war um there were thousands if not millions of displaced Picked persons, refugees, released prisoners of war, redundant soldiers, criminals, all floating around Europe. It was the Wild West, if you like, is very dangerous. Um, you had the occupying powers, the British, French, Americans, and Soviets. They were in, they were ruling over their, their sort of conquered Germany, but with all this chaos going on, it was would have been very easy for misunderstandings, escalation, and you know possibly a move to a um, you know another conflict. So they sat down. A chap called um, Lieutenant General Brian Robertson. He was the deputy military governor, the British deputy military military governor, and his counterpart, the guy called Colonel General Mikhail Malinin and he was the deputy commander-in-chief of the Soviet forces in Germany and they signed an agreement it's only a two-page agreement but it basically says we will establish mutual military liaison missions accredited to our respective commanders-in-chief so what it meant was um, there was a British mission inside East Germany and that was called Brixmiss. And there was a Soviet mission inside West Germany, which became known as Sotsmis, S-O-X-M-I-S. And the robertson Malian Agreement, the RMA, the, were the rules that basically uh, uh, controlled this, this relationship. And that lasted unchanged until 1990. which was extraordinary. Um, when when they were doing it in 1946, I don't think any of them had any idea that the the exact same agreement would still be in force all those years later. Then in 1947, the Americans um, and the French did a similar arrangement and that established the Allied military liaison missions. And uh, this is a cracking story. I mean, I've been living and breathing it now for months working on this other book. But um, it's a it's a real passion project for me because it's so interesting um each mission had an outpost inside east germany in it, it, it was in potsdam um which was just across the uh the, the Glinica bridge and they had a uh, outstation called the mission house and that was their sort of like public um uh, public front if you like and they then they had a, a secret hq in west berlin and what the guys did was um the liaison part of their their job was, um, wining and dining. It was protocol. It was sorting out the discussions between the two commanders in chief. But very soon, pretty much from day one, actually, the role expanded to become intelligence collection. And this is why it sort of tags on the end of the book because it, it it's a um, really a sort of a, a, a not much understood aspect of cold war intelligence um and this was done through a clever thing called a tour now basically a tour was um normally lasted two or three days they were driving around um in uniform so that they're wearing british or american or french uniform um in high performance marked but heavily modified cars and they were basically spying <laughs> on the um uh, East Germans and the Soviets. So they were, um, following targets that were set by military intelligence. Um, and they would go around looking at a a base here or air air field here, whatever whatever the target was, or if they saw something interesting, they'd go and explore it. And the Soviets and East Germans didn't, didn't like this. So they put their secret police, um, and, and their police force and their soldiers against them against the mission guys and so they were chasing each other around the countryside it, it's an extraordinary tale of of evasion violence um escape braveness um you know all sorts of in- extraordinary things went on and this operation carried on for, for almost four decades it's a it's an amazing thing and it became the primary source of um if you like battlefield intelligence for nato uh during the cold war
0: now, did the Soviets have their own version of like touring missions? Uh, since they also had their liaisons, or did they just rely mostly on like the KGB agents that we were talking about earlier?
1: They had they had socks missions. In fact, they had three missions: one in in the French sector of uh, French zone of Germany, one in the American zone, and one in the British zone. And they operated in a similar way. Not their their intelligence environment was more benign. You know, there weren't spies on every street corner. They could merge with the West German populace. And, you know, if you wanted to know what the uh, Americans were up to, you look at Stars and Stripes and it would tell you. <laughs> um, whereas in East Germany, it was a very hostile um, environment to be in. And, and these guys had to literally sneak around and, th- th- you know, these high speed car chases sneaking around inside the forests and bushes, hiding behind bushes with cameras. You know, it was a very um, covert intelligence collection job, but they were, they were basically looking at, you know, installations, barracks, parades, exercises, route marches, you know, moving from A to B, um, training across from the Soviet Union, you know, new units coming into Germany, going out of Germany, and they'd be there hiding in the bushes <laughs> with their long lens cameras, taking pictures of all the kit and they were very interested in all the hardware that was that was coming in because basically the, for the soviets East Germany was the front line. It was, it was that where the shock troops faced off against NATO um, across, you know, the the inner German border. And so understanding the kit, the, the latest tank, the armor on that tank, basically they needed to do to design missiles to, you know, all this sort of technical intelligence was, was being collected. And that's what these guys did. And and they 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 did it 24-7. 365 days a year all weathers you can imagine camping overnight um outside uh and then driving around in these mercedes or these souped up saloon cars um uh basically spying on the opposition it's an extraordinary tale now what is kind of
0: the legacy of uh cold war uh espionage uh, in your view
1: well, we've also talked about the um, spy fiction uh, movies and TV series. Um, and yeah, it's true. Actually, you know, the, the, um, the, the there's a, a huge genre of very entertaining uh, fiction out there. Um, James Bond, notwithstanding, but the intelligence infrastructure that operated during the Cold War pretty much still exists today. There may be, as I said, different names above the door. Uh, so the KGB is you know now the F- FSB and SVR, but they operate, as you say, in the same ways, perhaps even using the, the manuals that um, we, we used in Tsar times. Um, the CIA, FBI, and the NSA over in the States, plus a whole whole load of other agencies. And in the UK, we've got um, SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, uh, MI5, which is domestic, and GCHQ, which is um, signals intelligence. And Technology has driven this whole thing up to to a whole new level, especially surveillance technology, satellite technology, and the things like... the tradecraft we talked about um you know the, the the chalk marks and drawing pins on park benches some of that has been superseded by technology so you can have encrypted phones and encrypted computers and that sort of stuff but the old the same methodology that was going on at the start of the cold war and you could argue back to back millennia is still being followed ultimately you're working In a hostile environment where trying to get information on your opposition the same thing goes back to you know um, uh, to to day one so um the need to understand one's friends one enemies um hasn't changed and as we know now you know with stuff that's going on in the ukraine and understanding what's going on there um is really important what's what i find extremely ironic is the kit that's being used by both the Ukrainians and the Russians is Cold War kit. So the, the T-72 tanks, the T-80 tanks that, that are now unfortunately fighting um, down there, they were being discovered by Bricksmiths and the US Military Liaison Mission back in, in the 80s. And that and that kit has now found its way, um, unfortunately, into a live conflict. So, yes, the, the, the lessons, the, the sort of legacies of the Cold War are still very valid
0: yeah one uh in regards to the conflict in ukraine one thing that has really uh exploded or maybe use a different term has really grown is the use of uh, open source intelligence mm. which is like a further development uh, in that do you have any thoughts on uh on that
1: uh? well the internet is is, is a hugely uh valuable and dangerous tool depending on how you, how you view it um, open source information has been been available for a long time um military attachés for example would have gone around during the cold war acquiring leaflets and brochures and obviously operating in um in the west uh, a soviet agent working in the west could ring up a military um manufacturer and be sent a glossy brochure <laughs> you know it was it was that easy um read stars and stripes to know when the so-and-so infantry brigade's going to be ex- exercising in 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 west germany that's open source information unfortunately there was no equivalent for the um the western agencies operating behind the iron Curt- curtain so that was hard intelligence collection um nowadays open source um uh intelligence is a, is a key aspect in this but um yeah um but sp- the same techniques are, are still being used uh, that have been used for decades
0: well this has been a very fascinating uh discussion uh do you have any final thoughts maybe touch on anything we uh weren't able to discuss earlier uh in the book
1: no it's, uh, it's been it's been a really good discussion thank you for for having me the um you can see i'm 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 fasc- fascinated in this in the subject and, and um you know i've only scratched the surface in some areas in the book um the, the certainly the bricksmith story i'm now telling in uh glorious technicolor in my in my in my latest book project um which will be out next year but the, but that goes into the the whole history of Bricksmiths and the missions and the the uh, uh what they got up to and the dangers they faced and the intelligence they that they acquired so um yeah if, if you like the the, the the chapter in the um in the book um is a taster if you like for the uh um for what i'm writing on now but um no, there's a lot still to be told in this whole subject area um you know the, the 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 books i'm writing in berlin um about berlin you know there's there's loads still to be told i think i'm i've had three published now i've got about another six or seven in the in the pipeline um uh, because there's just B- Berlin was very much the epicenter of the uh, the Cold War uh, from a military, but also an economic, um, intelligence perspective. So uh, yeah, I've got my work cut out for the next few years, and I'm, I'm loving it.
0: Well, when you finish some of those projects, uh, maybe we can have you back on the podcast.
1: I'd be I'd be very very pleased to come. So anyway, thank you very much for having me,
0: uh, Andrew Long. Uh, thank you for joining us on the uh, New Books Network. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. Until next time.